You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Thursday. It is a Theology Thursday here on the Steve Day Show podcast on Westwood One, powered by CRTV. We're going to have a special guest for this Theology podcast coming up in a moment. Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch has a new book, From Muhammad to ISIS, chronicling the history of jihad in the history of Islam. That's coming up uh, a little bit uh, later on. But Todd and Aaron are here with us as well. First of all, Todd, good to have you back. Big day yesterday. Tell the audience how it went. Oh, that's nice of you. Uh, great. My uh, big girl uh, has been uh, competing in the uh, Junior uh, Olympic Nationals, which just happens to be here in Des Moines this year. Uh, so, uh, we're p- But we're competing against uh, girls from all across the nation. And my daughter qualified to get here in a regional. She made it in the 800, the 1500, and the 3000. The 3000 nice. is yet to go. But uh, she ran against 85 total girls in the 800 from across the country and 72 total girls in the 1500 and she to medal you have to finish in the top eight and she medaled in both finishing fourth and sixth so proud papa indeed that sounds like a pretty good excuse to miss work and i appreciate it very much because man those are as the kids say these days i had all the feels (laughs) well deservedly so it's good to have you back of course, our podcast each day here for West One is powered by CRTV. We just concluded production for today's CRTV show. Let's give the audience a little preview of what's to come. I'll go right back to you, Todd. What stands out? You know, uh, Jim Acosta's, you know, just in the today's uh, press briefing, putting up quite a fight about how uh, how dare you call us the enemy of the people. I know that's pretty tough talk if it comes out of a a White House and when Donald Trump says things, we uh, take it with a grain of salt. But set that aside, uh, if you look at the behavior of the press just today in the last 24 hours, you got to wonder if maybe not all the time, but some of the time, maybe quite a bit of the time, it is in fact at least an enemy of some of the people. Mm. Aaron. I thought that Nate Madden was in rare form today on the round table. We uh, deduced, although it doesn't really take that much deduction, but we deduced once more um, just how terrible Washington is. And it's fun. I mean, at some point, we talk about it every day, but at some point, once you get down into the muck and mire, just roll around in it for a little bit. And we did today. And it, Own that and poop, fun. right? Own it, yes. It, it was interesting listening to him, how it reminded me of you and 
I, Steve, having being on different sides of the frustration barometer. And here, you, because it's his job and he has to tolerate on, on some level, I, I gave up for a moment there. I had fun doing it. But, you know, basically the revolution happened, I asked him. You know, we, we are not living in the United States of America anymore. And he was, he was kind of, uh, well, if you look at it this way. Um, I, I, and I told him, you have the patience of Job to, to, to find the optimism in this thing. Because, man, it, what a joke. If, the, if this is what being in the majority is, why? Yeah, we had Jim Jordan on our podcast yesterday, and he didn't get a chance to hear that. Definitely go listen to it. And he wants to be the new House Speaker, and I spent the entire, or the majority of the interview anyway, getting specific with him. Meaning, I don't need to question him on his voting record. He's got like a 97% score at Liberty Score at Conservative Review. I'm frankly not qualified to question him on what happened at Ohio State. I'm not an investigative reporter, and he's had a litany of his former coaches and players come out and defend him. So that that's really beyond my capability and grasp to go to that story. So my interest then, what I think we could add to the conversation is if you were speaker, and I kept asking him this, if you were speaker when we had the fake Obamacare repeal, repeal fights last year. If you were speaker, we had the omnibus earlier this year. If you were speaker, we had the DOJ stonewalling Congress right now. If you were speaker compared to Paul Ryan, what would be different? I gave a lot of specifics where those are concerned. And you go listen to yesterday's podcast to make up your own mind, whether you like the, whether you like the answers or not. But I bring him up in that, in the context of what you just said, because he tweeted out earlier today, here's what Democrats want in this election. Here's what Republicans want. You decide. Well, if it were true that most Republicans wanted the things in, that Jim Jordan put in his tw- in his t- tweet today, we'd be like, you know, can we vote early and often? This would be a no-brainer. Yes. But the fact we have to discuss whether or not to shut the government down to get the majority party to give the people that gave them the majority what they want right away proves to you that there's a whole bunch of Republicans that don't want the stuff that Jim Jordan puts in that tweet that he says differentiates himself themselves from Democrats, right? Correct. Because if we did, if, that, if it was that simple, there'd be no need for a shutdown. They'd have done these things. They can't keep their prom- a lot of their promises because a lot of these guys don't. And that's why there's, that's where the conflict comes for us as conservatives. That's where the conflict comes for us within, within conservatism, within ourselves. We, we can't lie to each other anymore that these guys are all conservative heroes. We know the truth now. And so we can either continue to lie to ourselves if we want. We can rationalize this that they're or mythologize them, if I could use that word, uh, or just make it up on the spot. <laughs> you know, exalt them to you know uh, to heights they don't deserve. Or do we if we say you know screw it, I'm fed up, I'm not going to do this anymore. Or do you say I know they're lying to me, but I can't let the communist win, so I have to put up with. These are the options that are causing the consternation and division within the conservative movement and within our own psyches. Because if it were as simple, and I would love it if it was as simple as Jim Jordan's tweet today claimed. If it were that simple, this would all be a no-brainer. But it's not that simple. Now, maybe it would be that simple if Jim Jordan were the speaker. I don't know. I don't know the future. That's the case he tried to make yesterday on our show. But it certainly isn't that simple right now. And that don't you think that's what's causing all the arguments? It's not that simple. I mean, literally, Hannity, O'Bannon, others are literally now making the argument. They're saying this out loud. You're going to have to vote for rhinos. 
stop the Democrats from taking over. I don't know what else to tell you. Now, I give them credit for being that honest with us. I've wanted that level of honesty for a long, long time. Because let me let you in on a little secret. This whole you got to vote for rhinos to stop the communists from winning didn't just start this year. (laughs) All right. This has been going on most of my career. It's been like this. We're just now being honest and upfront about that. And I wonder if we'd have been honest and upfront about that for a lot longer other than till now. Maybe things would be different. And a lot of these primaries we've lost the last three or four cycles, maybe the results would have been different. But I wish it were that simple. It's not. And that's why we're arguing with each other all the time. Well, if you want to subscribe to CRTV, uh, use my name as a promo code. D-E-A-C-E will get you a discounted subscription just a quarter a day, not just for our show, but also every show, beginning with the great one, Mark Levin, all the way down to the very bottom of the trough, the bottom of the food chain, the plankton algae of CRTV. That would be us, the Steve Dace Show. CRTV.com, promo code DACE, gets you a discounted subscription to all our shows at CRTV. Take advantage of it today. Well, as promised, we are joined on this Theology Thursday by Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch, his new book, due out August 7th, so you can pre-order at Amazon right now, The History of Jihad, from Muhammad to ISIS, and we want to welcome Robert to the show here today. It's good to see you, brother. How are you? Just great, Steve. How are you? I'm doing very well, and the timeliness of this interview is uh, serendipitous, because I posted a story on my Facebook wall yesterday. There is an imam in Nigeria who was given a civic award uh, for essentially pulling an Oscar Schindler, uh, saving a few hundred Christians from Muslim jihadists. And the Nigerian government recognized his contribution and gave him an award. And I posted a link to this on my Facebook wall because I try to be as fair and balanced as I can with my worldview. I'm brutally honest with our audience about the brutality of certain sects and aspects of Islam. And we often call on people that identify as peaceful Muslims to stand up to the jihadist culture. And here was an example of it. So I wanted to recognize it. And I looked at some of the comments uh, on my Facebook wall, Robert, and and one of the things that I, I decided I wanted to put in response to what was a common thread is, I know you've studied it much more than I have. I've, I've tried to read the Quran several times. I think in the several times I've tried to read it, I've gotten through the whole thing one time. It's a difficult read for the Western mind. It's random. Muhammad was illiterate. There's not really an order to it. Um, and so it's nonlinear prose, which is a tough read for the average Western thinker. Um, But you will find beauty in there, but plenty of ugly. But the problem is the history of Islam tilts more towards the ugly than to the beauty. And that seems to be right in line of what you are chronicling in your latest book. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. The thing is, most people don't know this. Most people assume that there were periods of tolerance and peace, coexistence, uh, with mutual respect between Muslims as well, and Christians and Jews. And the thing is, is that this kind of claim is being used as a political weapon nowadays, mm-hmm. with uh, people saying, I, I, there's a scholar, Akbar Ahmed, who is a professor at American University. He's uh, 75 years old, very well-respected, very influential. And he's ri- just written a book about uh, Islam in Europe, which argues that Islam, uh, the Europe rather, needs a new Andalusia, that is Muslim Spain. And he argues that Muslim Spain was so tolerant and multicultural that it ought to be the model for Europe to follow today. 
Well, as I show in my book, in reality, Muslim Spain was a very, very difficult place to live for non-Muslims. They were oppressed under various humiliating and discriminatory regulations that if they got out of line and disobeyed, they could be massacred. And so uh, this historical myth and many, many others is being used to put forward a political program for today. What Akbar Ahmed and his allies want to do, of course, is soften up resistance to the mass Muslim migration into Europe. And my book is hoping to set the record straight in terms of the what, what's happened in history. And one would hope that will lead to more realistic policies dealing with the jihad threat. So one of the things we've had to do a lot on our show the last few years is define our terms, right? And and words that we thought have meant something for a long time. You know, tolerance used to mean, um, you know, Mr. Manischewitz uh, came out on Christmas morning to shovel his walk and wished you a Merry Christmas. And uh, you gave him a mazel tov a few weeks prior uh, during Hanukkah. All right. Now, now tolerance is uh, I let my freak flag fly, and if you don't uh, freak out with me, you're a bigot, right? So words don't mean what they used to mean around here. So we have to define our terms all the time. Take, for example, one of the first words in the title of your book, jihad. See, I think a lot of people don't know what this means. Uh, they've been told it means yes. holy war. I, my understanding, though, theologically, it's more intimate than that. It essentially means the inner struggle of every Muslim, that every Muslim is called to jihad, meaning to the spread of the dominion of Islam. Um, there's just differences of what form that takes. It can be a violent jihad. It can be faithfully living out the five pillars. Sort of separate fact from fiction on that word right there, Robert. Absolutely, Steve. Jihad in Arabic means struggle. And there are all kinds of jihads in Arabic, just like there are all kinds of struggles in English. Mm -hmm. You can struggle to quit smoking or lose weight, and there's also could, there also could be a massive struggle between civilizations. And it's all the same word. The Islamic Republic of Iran has a Department of Agricultural Jihad, which doesn't mean blowing things up on the farm. It means <laughs> trying to increase struggling to increase crop yields. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, though, that in Islamic theology and law, the primary meaning of jihad throughout history has been the struggle to impose Islamic law over the world. Yeah. And that means the struggle involves warfare against unbelievers and their subjugation under the rule of Islamic law. There is the spiritual struggle that is interior, but that's always been a secondary, although it's called the greater jihad, it's always been secondary in the practice of Islam, as I show in this book. This is an important distinction, so I want to make sure we hammer this home. Our audience will never meet a Muslim, not a peaceful American Muslim here uh, at home or a Muslim anywhere they would travel abroad that is not called to some form of jihad because the spreading of the dominion of Islam is a key component of their faith that's similar to it. it well, it's not morally similar. But in terms of how the hermeneutics of, of Islam works, it's, it's sort of a great commission, if you will. And so yes, this is, this is a non-negotiable right. non for the Muslim. The question is, what form of, does this take for them? But their call yes. to spread the dominionism of Islam is a non-negotiable, correct? Is that right? No doubt about that. Absolutely, yes. And there is, that doesn't mean that every Muslim is a terrorist or is called to be a terrorist. Mm -hmm. There is jihad of the pen, jihad of the tongue all kinds of jihads. But here again, throughout history, the book shows that there's never been a let-up, that there's never been a period of peaceful coexistence and tolerance. There have always been some Muslims throughout history all over the world who have understood jihad to mean that they have to take up arms against non-Muslims. 
This is why the need for a reformation, as we've heard within Islam, is difficult, right? Christianity has gone through time periods where um, if if you had a Protestant king, he targeted the, the Huguenots. If it was a Catholic queen, Mary killed the, Christ, killed the Protestant Christians. We've, we've gone through these periods pre- and post-reformationally and eventually agreed that the best testimony to our witness as Christians is not to kill each other over our theological differences. Why has this been up until this point in history, anyway, Robert? What did your what, what as you were studying for your book? Why is this difficult to obtain in Islam? Why aren't there more stories like that Nigerian imam I just mentioned a while ago? Why is this a more difficult thing concept for them to grasp? Well, for one thing, it's because there's a death penalty in Islam for heresy and apostasy. And all the schools of Islamic jurisprudence teach that jihad warfare against unbelievers should be pursued by Muslims. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody who says, no, we should coexist peacefully as equals with the unbelievers, then you're going to get people saying this person is a heretic and ought to be put to death. Mahmoud Mohammed Taha was a Sudanese Islamic theologian in the 1980s, and he taught that the peaceful passages of the Quran should actually supersede the violent ones. In, in traditional Islamic theology, the violent ones are considered to supersede the peaceful ones. And he was actually hanged as a heretic in 1985 by the Sudanese government. This is the kind of thing that happens if you question the established understanding of things. So reform tends to be rather discouraged under those circumstances. Or they reform not in the way we are hoping, right? Because ISIS in and of itself is is a small r reformation from Al Qaeda, as I understand it. Meaning, they viewed their their pursuit of jihad as something that wasn't violently effective enough, and therefore they needed to form sort of their own separation from that. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And that's another very important point that there has been. As I, another thing that I show in the book, it's kind of a recurring theme. There are Islamic reform movements. And the reform movements purport to bring Islam back to what it was originally and to clear away all the later things that have been added in. And uh, the Wahhabis are a prime example of that reform movement. That's the official religion of Saudi Arabia, and it is a very virulent and violent form of Islam. And the uh, founder of it, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, actually started to gain followers and proved his sincerity by personally stoning an accused adulteress to death. And so this was appreciated by Islamic hardliners who saw that the stoning penalty for adultery was part of Islamic law and was happy to see it personally implemented by this man. There have been movements like this all through history, but they all end up creating a more violent, more virulent form of Islam because that's what is taught in the text. So when you're going to get back to the original, the te- what the texts actually say, you're going to end up with a very violent understanding of Islam. Uh, Robert, this is uh, Totters and uh, Steve's editor. It is 2018, and that's 17 years since uh, 9-11, which many of the points you have been making on the show, in this book, and have been making uh, uh, for years, uh, it, 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 sh- it seemingly should have been hammered home 
that long ago, yet here you are continually doing this yeoman's work. How frustrating is it for you that this culture does not take this notion of jihad, what the faith of Islam really is? I mean, it's clearly not frustrating enough for you to stop, or maybe I have it backwards. It's so frustrating for you that that's why you keep going. Uh, what is it fundamentally about this that the average American is not willing to grant do they do they not care or or is it something ultimately for them that uh, it's a truth that they simply don't want to acknowledge i think that the bottom line really is that the average american's been lied to and they're misled one of the things that really walloped me as i was writing this book i wrote it more or less chronologically started with the 7th century went through 8 9 10 11 12th century all the way up to the present pretty much in order and when I got to the 21st century, which is the last chapter of the book, Jihad in the 21st Century, of course, I started with 9-11 and then went to George W. Bush in the mosque six days after 9-11, saying that Islam is a religion of peace in the company of a man who is a chief financier, who's now in prison, uh, Abdurrahman Alamudi, for being a chief financier of al-Qaeda. I mean, can you imagine... Franklin Delano Roosevelt, after Pearl Harbor, standing there with the chief financier of the Japanese war machine and saying that Japan was a peaceful nation, it was tantamount to that. And after chronicling 14 centuries of jihad, it really hit me how disconnected from reality the statement of President Bush really was. But it became the basis for a massive misleading of the American people, such that every time there's a jihad attack now, we have authorities saying, this has nothing to do with Islam. Just recently, there was a fellow who was re reported by police to have been interested in ISIS websites, and he went and shot people randomly in Toronto, and uh, ISIS claimed the killings, and then the Canadian government said, no, 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 this was not a terror attack. He was mentally ill, and this is something that has become drearily familiar. So most people, this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book, most people do not know the nature and magnitude of the jihad threat, and they do not know what we're really up against because they're not being told accurate history, and they're not being reported present-day reality in any accurate manner. Oh, and again, I'm just struck by your patient. You know, I mean, you have the patience of Job to continue uh, to go through this. I, ISIS... Uh, compare. We have many strings of this. I mean, you must cover it all from Muhammad to ISIS. We have Al Qaeda with all of. Can you highlight the ways ISIS is most unique and the ways? And I don't want to take it for granted in any sense. How is it very much like uh, Al Qaeda and going all the way back uh, uh, to the World Trade Center bombers? What What are the most important distinctions and similarities to understand? ISIS was and is, uh, as you say, a reform movement. It broke from al-Qaeda because they were arguing over whether it was an opportune time to establish a caliphate in Iraq. And al-Qaeda was in favor of establishing a caliphate in Iraq, but as a long-term goal. And Osama bin Laden, actually, before he was killed, said that if a caliphate had been estab were established in Iraq, the Americans would come and topple it, and it would make Islam look bad. And for a while, it looked as if he was wrong, because under Obama, ISIS grew and prospered and came to, excuse me, came to occupy a territory larger than Great Britain. But then Trump uh, reversed their fortunes, and now they hold very little territory. 
But the key importance of ISIS to this day is that it is a conscious imitation of Muhammad, and it patterned its behavior after Muhammad. A lot of the more hair-raising things that ISIS did, the public beheadings, the sex slavery, and more, these were in imitation of Muhammad. And as I show in the book, Muhammad did these things himself and is considered exemplary for all Muslim conduct. And also, as I show throughout history in the book, he's been imitated not just by ISIS, but by many other Islamic movements throughout history. And that imitation does not end up with people being generous, magnanimous, benign, and tolerant, but brutal, bloodthirsty, and violent. How does this book ultimately leave it in terms of how, worst case scenario, how far away potentially are we from a caliphate? Well, I'll tell you, I end up the book by the last chapter, the Jihad in the 21st Century. The last chapter is called The West Loses the Will to Live. And I conclude the entire book by saying that the greatest allies that the jihadis have today are non-Muslim leaders who think that they are doing some great thing by aiding and abetting their ultimate goals. And uh, we are in uh, the, the, the crisis really cannot be overstated. We, the jihadis have their eye on Europe, and they are already destabilizing several European societies to a considerable degree. And uh, we're just a little bit behind them in the United States. Of course, in the United States, there is a pushback with President Trump wanting to have these travel bans and succeeding with the Supreme Court approving it, we have a chance to prevent the massive Muslim migrant influx that has so destabilized Europe with skyrocketing crime rates and especially rape rates and so on. Uh, but the uh, Muhammad is depicted as predicting first the conquest of Constantinople and then the conquest of Rome. Constantinople, as I show in the book, was conquered in 1453. And today the jihadis believe that they are closer to the conquest of Rome than they've ever been. And Rome, as, as, for, as far as they're concerned, and I don't mean to offend any Protestant or Orthodox Christians out there, but they consider Rome to be the center of Christianity because of the Pope, and they're going to go in and behead the Pope and declare a caliphate there. This is something that some people might say will never happen, but with the massive Muslim migrant influx into Europe, and including Italy, there has been an unknowable number of jihadis who have entered Europe, and they do have this aspiration. Man, the way you decide, you describe this, the Crusades really never ended for at least one side of this equation, did they? No, that's absolutely right. Uh, the last Crusade, their territories were conquered, as I show in the book, in the year 1291. But there have been, uh, there was never a let-up in the Islamic Jihad that the Crusaders were actually trying to combat. Robert Spencer is our guest here on the Steve Day Show podcast from Jihad Watch. History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS is his new book, out August 7th. Pre-orders available right now on Amazon. He's our guest for this Theology Thursday. And, you know, one of the things we've tried to encourage and equip our audience to understand the last couple of years as well, Robert, we already talked about you have to redefine your terms all the time, but you have to accept your opponents and your opposition for who they say they are, not for who you want them to be. You, you can't project that upon them. I think this is a major mistake we in the West have made in a post 9-11 world where we have been as you know, projecting John McCain's Syrian freedom fighters, uh, Barack Obama's Arab Spring. We've, we've been doing this wish casting 
magical thinking. We've been projecting things upon these civilizations. And then uh, when um, an LCC rises up, um, we're hesitant to uh, support him over the Arab Spring in his own country, uh, for or the Muslim Brotherhood in his own country, for example. Um, how important is it for us to recognize, that's probably why he wrote the history of this book, to recognize Islam for what it is. And the irony is, I think until we do that, maybe you disagree, we're actually not going to really be able to come up with the more moderate uh, aspects of this particular religious community until we accept it for what it is. Instead, I see us sort of uh, projecting things upon people that haven't deserved this sort of, uh, you know, these sorts of accolades. And we put in power folks that end up turning on us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. We have to be realistic about this threat, and we have to be realistic. It's unpleasant, but it's true, and I can challenge anybody to show that it's not. Everywhere that Muslims have gone throughout history, they have created conflict with non-Muslims. Now, this is not to say that every Muslim is going to do this or that every Muslim is a terrorist, but there is a sufficient number that this conflict has always existed. Now, does it, what do we do in response to this? expel everyone? No, of course not. What we do is we need to start speaking honestly about this problem, have a real discussion about it, an honest discussion about it in the public square, and call upon Muslim groups, Muslim organizations, the mosques in the United States to reform, to the genuine reform that is not reform like the Wahhabis, but a rejection mm -hmm. of this idea of warfare against unbelievers, and not just rejection in words, but rejection in deeds, teaching against, instituting transparent and honest programs that teach against this understanding of Islam, and warn young Muslims that they must not take up these ideas of Islam and why they are wrong. Then there might be a chance for some genuine peaceful coexistence, uh, but only if we admit in the first place that there's a problem at all instead of just pretending that there isn't. Hmm. What would you, if you were in, if you had an audience with President Trump right now, because I'm guessing from what we've heard from you today, you and I probably agree that we like his foreign policy rhetoric of, it's not our job to import, uh, export democracy, um, and it's not our job to clean up your religion. It's yours. Uh, if you guys want to make money with the civilized world um, and not blow us up, cool. Um, we're happy to have you. Um, if you're not into that and you want to blow us up, we're going to make you regret that you were ever born. And if you just want to be left alone, we're happy to do that, as opposed to the the quote-unquote neoconservative utopian view, which is, is you know, a contrast to the old Gene Kirkpatrick view that we need strong men like Assad and, uh, and, and like Hussein in Iraq and Assad in Syria to keep jihadists at bay, that maybe there's this sort of third way of, you know, you guys police your own. I'm guessing you would be very favorable to that, like what the president said in Riyadh last year. I was extremely favorable of it. But but then when we get yeah. to his we get to his Pentagon and his State Department and it comes time to implement these speeches, that's not always what happens, right? We're gonna make we're, we're now doing our seventy fifth surge in Afghanistan, for example. Okay. So if you could sit down yeah. with the president, what would you say to him, Robert? Well I would tell him you're never gonna get the uh, Afghanistan situated in a way that's satisfactory. 
And so you should uh, withdraw. Yes, Obama was wrong to uh, withdraw so precipitously from Iraq and to uh, uh, do so in a way that was announced such that everybody knew when they would be able to swoop in. Uh, you could do it a little more craftily than that. Mm-hmm. But the idea that there is going to be some Western-style secular republic in Afghanistan is never it's never going to come to fruition. And it's a fool's errand that is based on an ignorance of the nature of, of Islam, the nature of Sharia as Islamic law, and the nature of jihad. And so you need to get us out of there and try to, I think, uh, formulate a policy of containment that is based on the old policies of containment of the Soviet Union, that these people are going to do what they're going to do in their own countries, and we won't interfere. But we're not going to allow any exportation of jihadis or the jihad ideology. Just as Vegas allowed the mob to put a nice corporate front on racketeering, I see what's going on in Turkey as doing the same thing to Islamic jihad. It's essentially giving, Erwin is allowing them to, to give off the veneer of, quote unquote, going legit, if you will. Am I wrong? Is that an overstatement? No, I think you're very. No, that's very well said. Erdogan is very clever. He knows how to play play the Western media, and so even though he has uh, essentially openly declared that he wants to restore the caliphate and that he has laid claim to the lands that once belonged to the Ottoman Empire, which is extraordinarily ominous and uh, a dangerous signal to Greece, to uh, all of the countries of the Middle East and the countries of North Africa. Uh, he, he has nonetheless, in the Western media, couched his uh, rhetoric in terms of the same kind of racism and claims of Islamophobia that have always played so well among the Western establishment media. And so, yeah, you're putting a respectable face on things, fooling people as to what his true intentions are. That's what Erdogan is all about. But uh, I think that he's shown himself and he's shown his true colors in the recent controversy over Pastor Andrew Brunson, mm-hmm. the, uh, the uh, Protestant Christian missionary from the United States, who's lived in Turkey for 23 years and was suddenly arrested and uh, convicted of, on spurious uh, Charges. Actually, I'm not sure he was convicted yet, but in any case, charged with all these terrorism charges of terrorism that are just ridiculous and being held in prison. Trump has appealed for his release. Many others have appealed for his release. And Erdogan is defiant and uh, says that he will not do this, that the uh, Americans should be put on notice that the alliance with Turkey is not unbreakable. And I think, well, yeah. You've essentially already broken it. You you were buying ISIS oil. Turkey was buying oil from the Islamic State, refused John Kerry's request not to do so, and uh, was allowing ISIS fighters to travel across Turkey into Europe. And so how is that an ally of the United States? In In no rational sense, is it? And now he's just being a little bit more open about that. I bring that up in the context of this conversation uh, for the final couple of questions we wanted to ask you today. What is from, you know, the subtitle from Muhammad to ISIS? I believe what's going to come after ISIS, that this level, I I don't really know what, maybe the human mind can't even comprehend what form of barbarism you know, you devolve from an Al-Qaeda to an ISIS. I, I don't know 
ninth ring of hell. I, I don't know how you devolve from the barbarism, you know, with the next level, dial it up to 11 from ISIS is. So I think what is going to come next is uh, this is the classic Overton window scenario is that the barbarism has been stretched so far that it's actually opened the window far enough for someone like Turkey's wannabe uh, caliphate to walk right through uh, the front doors uh, in a you know in an Italian suit dressed to the nines and that's where I believe this is going to go next that you know it's, it's we've never really seen Islamic jihad concentrated and in a nation state, right? You've had the Saudi family at times was friendly with they had with hobbyist schools. You've had radicalism within the nation states themselves, but a a concentrated nation state hub of radicalism of jihad. That's where I think this is going to go next, and it's going to look corporate and it's going to look official rather than further barbarism. What's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I think so, and I, I agree because that is actually how it's been historically. The 20th and the 21st centuries, as I show in the book, are a departure from what had been previously, when jihad was always the province of nation states and was always carried out by, uh, sometimes by uh, rulers and diplomats of great sophistication. But nonetheless, they were pursuing Islamic jihad. They were pursuing the same goals as the terrorists today. Uh, for a variety of reasons, that changed in the beginning of the 20th century, and it could well be. This is one of the reasons why many Muslims around the world want to restore a caliphate, so that it will once again become a matter of nation-states waging war against non-Muslim states in order to conquer and Islamize them. Hmm. The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, Robert Spencer, the author. Book comes out August 7th. Pre-orders available right now at Amazon.com. You can follow his work each and every day at Jihad Watch. It's always fascinating to talk to you, Robert. We've done this several times throughout the years. Appreciate your work. Thanks for joining us again here today on Westwood One. Always a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. So, gentlemen, as we wrap up this Theology Thursday, and I think it's the, this might be the first time we've done this where we didn't have some you know, internal Judeo-Christian worldview question or theological issue, but we looked externally at a totally foreign uh, theology for a Theology Thursday podcast. What'd you think of what you heard, Aaron? Let me start with you. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting on on two two fronts. One, just how ignorant um, the West is about what we're dealing with for two reasons. Uh, one, just the worldview of Islam in general um, and taken to its logical conclusions. Many, many sects of Islam uh, are not just are just fundamentally not compatible with Western ideals. Secondly, as far as ignorance goes from the West, um, just how many sects of Islam there are. Uh, so the um, stereotypical uh, quiz, not quizzling, I guess I shouldn't say quizzling, um, but uh, weak need Western leader who says that we need to be accepting, you know, Muslims are always peaceful. Yeah, maybe they, they that might be right about a few sects of Islam, maybe even most sects, sects of Islam, but the inability to draw distinctions from uh, leaders in the West, those, those are interesting things as well. Um, and then as it pertains to the Middle East, I don't think if there are any lessons to be learned about our foreign policy to, to the Middle East at any level, 
based on this conversation and based on what we've seen our foreign policy be, that we have learned any sort of lesson. Um, there continues to be seemingly um, very little direction or understanding of what our actual goal is over there. And on top of that is what I just laid out before with the ignorance of what Islam teaches and how many different sects and variations of Islam there are. Um, this, again, goes back to a fundamental worldview issue. You will, you will understand and seek to understand others' worldviews and how it impacts your own if you have a fully for, uh, formulated worldview that starts with the notion that humans are not basically good. Mm-hmm. However, the more progressive you become... Um, the more you see even wicked worldviews become equal to your own. So it's well it's fascinating. Uh, it's fascinating on a number of levels just to watch this play out. Fascinating and depressing. You made an interesting point. Well, you made numerous interesting points there, but one, I, I want to make sure we don't have it lost in the shuffle there, Aaron. When you said, you know, when you, or you referenced defining what the mission is over there. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you that question. What do you think? What do you think the mission is in the uh, Middle East? Um, what do I think it? What it should, or, or what what it ought, or what it is? Uh, either one or both. Okay. Well, what it is is who the hell knows. Uh, what it ought to be is I I think um, at this point every uh, every now and then a new threat comes up. I'm sorry if you are. Again, we have to be able to draw distinctions here. Um, the government's job or mandate in a Judeo-Christian worldview is separate from an, uh, an individual Christian's mandate. Mm-hmm. The government's role is to punish the evildoer. I think in this context, there is so many thing, there are so many things that we cannot control, specifically not through diplomacy. I think that every now and then, the Middle East has to become basically a bombing range. That's the only way that I, I see it uh, at this point. Again, I don't want that to be the, the, the case, but there are too many factions in the Middle East that it is impossible to actually police through any sort of diplomatic effort. So it's either that or, uh, I can't remember the name that you dropped, um, that or just kind of keeping dictators in check and letting them do that for you, letting them police um, their own various factions with a strong arm. But we have to, before you even come to any of those conclusions, you have to recognize that Islam, by its very nature, is fundamentally incompatible with a traditional Western notion of how to live. What stood out to you about this interview, Todd? That's some good stuff, Aaron. Oh. The benefit of hindsight, we look back at history, um, and that's one of the great things history is supposed to be able to do. Uh, it's supposed to be able to, uh, to uh, help us not make the same mistakes twice. So we, we, we can see, we can connect the dots. Why did the Revolutionary War ultimately happen? We can see what led up to it, the Civil War, World War II. Mm-hmm. Well, when I ask Robert Spencer about, you know, how, how far away are we realistically from the caliphate? He didn't put a time on it, but he said a fundamental... Uh, aspect of what it would take for the caliphate to happen is happening right now, the fall of Europe. 
Uh, that is pretty chilling. Does it take... Does that take the rest of our lifetime? Does it happen after we're gone, Steve? Is it perhaps happening much, much sooner than that? Uh, he doesn't know, but one way or the other, he says it is happening as we speak. That is remarkable to behold. Because there's no buffer. I mean, the history of Islam tilts towards the caliphate. Um and at times, rival or warring caliphates, like what happened after Muhammad's death, for example. This is where we get the, the traditions of Sunnis and Shias from. Is which of these caliphates were going to, uh, you know, pick up the mantle from Muhammad following his passing. So, I mean, the history of Islam tilts towards the caliphate, with the Ottoman Empire being the most, you know, obvious example. So, why haven't we seen this in our day and age? Because Western civilization has provided the buffer towards that happening, uh, has made it very difficult for, because the goal of a caliphate and the way you would assert yours is the caliphate to consolidate behind is you have the means and the opportunity to impose hegemony. If there's not hegemony, guess what you don't have? A caliphate. Right? So do you need hegemony to have a caliphate or a caliphate to have hegemony? Yes. <laughs> All right. So if if you're a bit player on the world stage, you can go out into the street and scream caliphate, 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 caliphate all you want. You're not rallying people to you. This is what ISIS tried to do this. This is what ISIS was trying to do. They were trying to wreak as so much havoc, essentially conquer Iraq and Syria with the point of saying, we've defeated the West. Iraq is a proxy state of the United States, the great Satan. We've, we've, we've deposed Assad, who the, West, who the West has at times called vile and necessary, depending on which leader and which era. We got rid of Assad. We, got rid of the, we, we have taken over the U.S. proxy state of Iraq. We're the caliphate. We're the winners. Jump on our bandwagon. That's essentially the history of Islam. Well, if you have a powerful Western buffer, very difficult for consolidation around a caliphate because they can't acquire hegemony. But if the West is going to unilaterally disarm in front of radical Islam and multicultural themselves out of a civilization, this is what Robert's talking about, right? Hegemony suddenly becomes possible, right, Tom? Yeah. There's there's, There's nobody to stop them. And again, he, he didn't want to be grandiose and putting in a number on it, but his clear implication was that it could be much, much sooner than anybody thinks. Well, great conversation with Robert Spencer. Enjoyed having him here with us today on Theology Thursday on the Steve Dace Show. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. And if you have time today, click like or subscribe there on iTunes or Stitcher. And the more of you that do that, the more that helps other people to find us as well. So many of you already have. Thank you. We greatly appreciate it. Back at it again tomorrow. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like you.